Hello, everybody. This is attorney Andy Markintel and attorney Mark J. Victor. We are the Attorneys for Freedom, and you, my friends, are listening to the Peace Radicals podcast. How you doing, Mark? I'm great. It's awesome to be back. We took a week off. I did a little update for that week and uh, excited to get uh, rolling again with Peace Radicals. Well, we got a great guest today. We but do. Before we get into our guest, uh, what we've been doing is when people click on this video, they haven't heard of this movement before, they're curious, they want a summary of what the Live and Let Live movement is all about. We like to start each of these videos with a very brief summary. So, Mark, what is the Live and Let Live movement? I like to tell people it is what it purports to be, right? I mean, if you like the phrase live and let live, you're going to love the live and let live movement, right? There's two parts to this. Number one, live, live your life, define your happiness, pursue your happiness, do whatever you want with one exception. You got to let live. That's the other part of the equation, which means other people have equal rights to do exactly the same thing. So what we're really trying to figure out is What's the line between live and let live? And the line is don't be an aggressor, right? Be peaceful. And uh, an aggressor is somebody who uses force or fraud or coercion or does something, and there are many things one could do, that create a serious risk of harm to another person or their property. We like to call that the live and let live principle. And what we're saying with the live and let live principle is really don't do that. Don't violate that rule. Don't violate that principle. And uh, the laws, which are the kinds of rules in the world that you have to comply with. And if you don't, there's going to be a sanction. And the law ought to be calibrated around the live and let live rule. So if you're violating that rule, we should do everything possible to stop you from violating that rule. You got no right to initiate force, fraud or coercion to say another way, to be an aggressor against another person. So in a nutshell, to summarize the live and let live principle applied to the law, if you live, then it should be legal. And if you don't let others live by being an aggressor, it should be illegal. Yeah, or live peacefully would be another way to say it. That's the, how the law should be calibrated. This seems really, this seems strikingly uh, simple, Mark. Super simple. It's odd. This is why live and let live, the phrase appeals to so many people. And uh, so that's about the law. There are some other things we talk about because we're a peace movement, not just a freedom movement. And so uh, we're pushing some aspirational values that I'm really proud to push. Things like open-mindedness and tolerance and voluntary kindness and civility towards other people and uh, being committed to the truth and facts and rational thought and justice and uh, things that build high levels of trust with other human beings. This, these are the kinds of things that help you live a good life. And so these aren't mandatory. We're not saying put this into the law. What we are saying is we should encourage other human beings to act consistently with these aspirational values. And by the way, this is a, a non-exhaustive list, as we lawyers like to talk about. There could be other things in there. Some people just describe this part as... Be a good human being. And notably, this is where historically the freedom movement has kind of stopped short, right? They haven't touched this topic. They're just like, for example, libertarianism is a great example. They're interested in calibrating the law in terms of getting to a free society. Love that part. Yeah. But they don't have anything to say on the moral stuff. Yeah, which is a real shortcoming, I think, for a movement. And so sometimes we lead with the aspirational values. And then really the only other part we're saying is this rule, this principle, it applies to everybody. Nobody gets a free pass here. It doesn't, we don't care about color of your skin or ethnicity or where you were born or any of that stuff. The live and let live rule applies to everybody. Even if you form a group, a small group, a big group, a corporation, a government, everybody and every group, whatever you call it, should be subject to the live and let live rule, which, which if you think about it makes sense. Why would we ever want a group to be an aggressor? We should always be against that. So if we organize the the laws of the world around the live and let live principle and we push the aspirational values, that's the only way to get to peace. And so uh, that's really what the movement is in a nutshell. We're trying to get away from the typical R's and D's and uh, try to build a community, a global community that we call the live and let live community, which is really thriving at the moment. And I'm excited to talk about it. Love it. Great summary. And uh, ladies and gentlemen listening, I don't know if you've ever tried to start a movement before, but it's a heck of a lot of work. And uh, there's a lot of players involved. One of those players is here with us today, and we're proud to say he's one of the founders of this movement. He's been absolutely invaluable. Today, we're talking to Dr. Rick Fisher. And uh, Rick, how you doing, man? 
I'm doing great. Can you start by introducing yourself? Yeah. Um, I'm a cosmetic surgeon. I've been Mark's friend for oh, a quarter of a century at least. Um, we've uh, united mostly on our shared value of uh, individual freedom, small government. And uh, this movement actually took, uh, was um, started in my house in Flagstaff when Mark and his wife were up visiting when I said to Mark, how come you've been a libertarian all these years and you guys have gone nowhere? You've actually been unable to get this wonderful message of non-aggression across to the majority of people. There isn't an election that you've ever seen somebody win who was a libertarian that I can remember. You never saw anybody, uh, more than about 3% of the population, and usually it's just a dissatisfaction with the other uh, parties vote there. It just wasn't working. So we bantered back and forth. And I don't know who came up with it. It was me or him or Mark. But we said, you should have something simple, something people hold on to, something not complicated. Even the word aggression is complicated. So how about live and let live? That's what we want. And Mark just ran with it. He made me look up online right then if there was a website, Live and Let Live. And I said, yeah, liveandletlive.org. It's available. He says, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to get it. This is the way. This is the way we're going. We're going to do this. Mark's a man of action, you see. Yeah. Oh, man. He's a pit bull. I think we had the website secured about 30 minutes after we came up with the idea. (laughs) Absolutely. And and I was just, you know, because I'm pretty laid back. I just this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. But it is working. And the more he talks about it to everybody, the more it is understood by the average person that all we got to do to to uh, get along is not beat each other on the head. This allows so many differences about among people to be overcome by just peaceful means. We can all just get along, whether we're gay, whether we're black, what religion we are, whether we're Sunni or Shiite, if we just adhere to the simple principle, and if our governments adhere to the simple principle, peace and prosperity will follow. There's never been a time in history when people were allowed to be free that they didn't prosper. We've had laboratory after laboratory experiment over uh, human history, that those times when people were most free, they were the most prosperous. So this is about reconciling differences between people. This is about peace and prosperity. This is a practical solution, a moral practicality. As Ayn Rand said, the moral is the practical. And this is a practical solution to differences between human beings. A wonderful idea. And it's very easy to get individuals to agree to. In my opinion, the big problem is when they get into groups and when they form governments, particularly in the West. In the underdeveloped countries, as we're finding out, it's the individuals that have got to learn this. The, the, to break the hold of tribes, we're making big progress now in Africa. And there isn't, there's 54 countries in Africa alone. There are very few that aren't failed states. They live by tribalism. They live in governments that are corrupt, dictatorships. They are so hungry for freedom from the people that we've met that they have to learn this just basic principle. Don't bang your neighbor on the head if he's different from you. That's it. That's it. Nothing more. So that's where we're at. Yeah, and uh, Rick and I both traveled uh, together down to Colombia for the Liberty International World Conference where I was fortunate enough to present. I had 45 minutes to present the Live and Let Live movement to really the leaders of many different countries in what you would very loosely call the freedom movement. 
And uh, I got to say, it was very, very well received. Lots of people came up and it was no sooner did I sit down and I was tapped on the shoulder with, uh, you got a new chapter here in Columbia and I want to be the South America coordinator. And people were very excited about it. And we made a lot of contacts and people are understanding that it's not enough to have a great idea, right? You got to communicate the idea and you got to do that in a way that people can understand it. And especially people who are at different sort of levels of understanding, right? I mean, some people just will say live and let live and put their fists in the air and they'll, they'll just be, I love it, live and let live. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it is an accurate representation of what we're trying to say. And if that's all they understand, fine. Welcome to the community. If you're going to live according to this notion, live and let live. Other people have a little bit better understanding. They get this notion of don't be an aggressor. And uh, other people, you know, they want to get into the weeds. What does it mean uh, to be an aggressor? What, what, are you, what are you talking about to initiate force or fraud? What's fraud or coercion or substantial risks? And they want to talk about that. And that's fine. We're happy to talk about that. We're lawyers. This is what we do. And so. Yeah, I mean, as Rick pointed out, even the concept of aggression which is the backbone of, say, libertarianism with the non-aggression principle. Even that's confusing to yeah. folks. And I think the way that Rick put it is is a great way to explain it. Don't hit your neighbor over the head because really force uh, and coercion and, and uh, th- serious substantial risks of such, those are all different ways of hitting your neighbor over the head. Right? Yeah, we really got to get people to understand the difference between a legal position and a moral position. And this is just so important. And you know, as we've gone through this movement, we've actually broken down the legal position to a criminal law position and a civil law position, which really just changes the punishment, the possibility of what the punishment would be. Or said another for way, the, there are some serious non-lawyer for the non-lawyer. It's just a line in the sand. You don't cross. You don't it's cross. Right. You don't be an aggressor. Do not cross. Anything on the right gets you in trouble. Anything on the left, as I'm looking at this line, okay is okay legally yes legally speaking maybe not morally to your neighbors but legally it's okay so if you don't believe something and your neighbor does believe something you can dispute it you can argue about it but you don't cross the line that's all Rick, did you ever accurately uh, identify one of the main problems? And you stated it very well, but just to return to it, it is so hard for some people to make the jumps from the individual to the group, right? And having the same principles uh, apply to the group as the individual. Why is that? And, and what do you think is a way to bridge the gap and help people's understanding of why this is such an issue? You know, I got a great quote for this. I was looking up this um Uh, It's by a a philosopher from the 19th century. He said, in individuals, insanity is rare, but in groups, parties, nations, and epochs, it's the rule. (laughs) I don't know. When you get people together, they feel that they have the right to exert their power and control others that they disagree with. It's just human nature, I guess. I don't have any other reason for it. I mean, it's, and that's what even you if, if it's like a small group, like if it's two people, like if me and Mark get together and say, we've formed a government now, we get to drag in Rick to force him to do, because we outnumber him two to one, we get to drag him in. I mean, it's, it's so self-evident on a small scale level that that's wrong and immoral. And of course, the rules of non-aggression should apply to that. So, I mean, to we lose people as soon as we call it a government, right? Yeah, well, you know, the great men uh, of the founding fathers put it in writing. And for the first time in history, the greatest document of government ever written. People have unalienable rights to their life, to their liberty and property. And other people cannot take it away from them, particularly the government. Unfortunately, we've lost a lot of that. Uh, As time has gone by, that's been abrogated. But that was the first time And I even got a, the first time the principle was ever spoken, was ever written down. The non-aggression principle, if you want to hear it. Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. So this guy- Real real quick to set the the stage for this. Mark tells me that you're uh, a bit of a history buff and you're currently working on some sort of an article or a project. Do you want to talk about that? Well, I'm just going to go and show how Live and Let Live emerged from 
the morass of the past. You know, freedom itself and the, the nature of freedom that we understand today is relatively a new thing. It only came around, its, its first beginnings were in England. England is where we have got most of this idea of individual liberty from. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that the, that the British were some of the worst um, uh, racists in our current terms that you could find in history. Yet it was from the stirrings and the fight between British Parliament and British kings that our notion of freedom came forth. And one of the preeminent philosophers of that time was John Locke. John Locke wrote the second treatise of government. He also wrote another, the first treatise, I guess. But here's, here's a quote from him that says the principles in English of the uh, 17th century. This was written in 1689. The state of nature has a law of nature to govern it, which obliges everyone and reason, which is that law teaches all mankind who will but consult it that being all equal and independent, no one ought to harm another in his life, health, liberty, and possessions. And when his own preservation comes not in competition, ought he, as much as he can, to preserve the rest of mankind, and may not, unless it be to do justice on an offender, take away or impair the life, or what tends to be the preservation of life, liberty, and health, limb or goods of another. So I can be free, but only if you can be free. That's the principle. That's 3LP said 400 years ago or 300 years ago. And it was from that that the American Constitution was derived. And it's from that further philosophers moved the uh, vanguard of freedom further, guys like von Mises, Ayn Rand, uh, Hayek, uh, Milton Freeman, you know, um, I view the live and let live movement as the very apogee, the very tip of a new worldview, a worldview of peace and prosperity. But it takes men like Mark Victor, who have that passion, who are relentless, who are pit bulls, who never stop and say no, to get it done. And of course, Andy, you and I are dragged along. Yeah, you, you're putting too much on me. I, I certainly can't do this by myself. And I've been inspired by people like Rick, who I've been friends with for, like I said, push, pushing 30 years. We have got a lot of other mutual friends where we've been really kicking around these issues for decades now and really the little nuances and how things can work. And so this is it takes an effort of lots of people. We've got a nice group, a nice community of people around the we world. We just talked about it. We didn't do anything. This is the first time we're doing something. That's what's so exciting. We are actually getting other people to want to do things, which is amazing. Neither of you were on the leaders meeting this weekend, but man, it was, I was brought to tears a couple of times because it was that inspiring of a meeting. It really started, it's starting to feel like a global community of people who are all working together to bring about this live and let live movement. The people, as always, uh, the team Africa comes in like a wild pack of wolves. They just keep popping in on the, on the zoom and they've got new chapters and new countries every single time we have a meeting they're telling us they have many many people over there lots of excitement they describe it as team africa is on fire mm -hmm. we had other chapters there at the very uh, hour before the meeting i was on having a discussion with a very eloquent guy from france who's talking about a chapter in france and at the very same time uh, Michael Edelstein, who we need to have on this show, who's been a really great help in building this movement, was working with the Poland chapter uh, because they were running one of their early meetings in their chapter. So lots of 
going on now. It's things are, it's almost taking a life of its own and it's feeling like a community and people are starting to get to know each other. The fellow I spoke with in France said, yeah, I'm going to be going to Portugal. I said, we got a group in Portugal. I told the leader of the Portugal group, hey, we got this guy in France. He's going to be coming through Portugal. He said, I'd love to get with them. Let's, we'll work on live and let live and talk and, and plan. And so things are starting to move in the right direction. Our task is to make sure that this movement doesn't go off the rails because, you know, it's possible to grow faster than you're ready for. And and we're on the verge of that right now because people are piling in and the chapters have wants and needs and things they want to get done. I mean, Africa's already setting their own conferences. Why are they piling in? Why are they piling? They're hungry for freedom. Right. Something that many of those countries do not have. And we take for granted. Yeah. We're so busy destroying it. They would just love to have it. Yeah, and the big point is we got to get over this notion that um, I got a right to tell somebody else how to live, right? I got to be comfortable with the idea that other people have equal rights to me to decide how they want to use their body, their property, their money, their time. And they may do things and will do things that I think are bad ideas. We got to get comfortable with this notion. And the most important people to this movement are the people that can understand the difference between, okay, I think that's morally wrong, and I think that should be legally wrong. And the people who are most important are the people who find certain conduct absolutely morally abhorrent, but acknowledge the fact that somebody should legally have the right to do it as long as they do it peacefully. Yeah, isn't this the same thing we talk about in the First Amendment area? I mean, people who understand the, the notion of free speech, right? Um, And this is really centerpiece to a free society. You have to be able to have free speech. We we understand the notion that free speech includes horrible, objectionable, offensive kind of speech. And if you want to defend the right to free speech, you have to defend the right of some person to peacefully say some horrible thing about something that we hold very dear. And we do understand this in the First Amendment free speech context. We got to understand it in all contexts. That's really what we're saying. And I think if you use the free speech analogy, people seem to understand it. The same is true for conduct, right? I mean, people get to trade with who they want or not trade with who they want and eat whatever foods, whether they're healthy or unhealthy and ingest substances that are healthy or unhealthy and pray to the wrong God or no God or whatever God or gods or whatever they want to do, things that we don't agree with, as long as they don't violate that that non-aggression rule that we call the live in, let live principle, if it doesn't violate that, we got to get comfortable with the notion that they get to do it and even defend it, even though it's the, we think it's the wrong thing to do. The, we have to call our fellow humans, brothers and sisters, to a higher calling to say, look, for the sake of freedom and peace. It's not just about live. It's live and let live. We got to get this through our heads. You can't be free unless your neighbor's free. That's results. Otherwise, you're walking around with a gun waiting to be taken down. So, Rick, tell us a little bit about this project you're working on, this uh, history. I know you gave a speech uh, a few years back at the Freedom Summit. I think we entitled it something like The History of the World or something. <laughs> and uh, you gave a speech that that started, I think, with the beginnings of the universe and brought us all the way to where we are today. And those, those, those things, that's big history. That's what they call big history. Um, there's another little quote that I took why this is so interesting. Uh, this is from uh, another philosopher from the 19th century, Hegel. We learn from history that we do not learn from history. We learn from history that we do not learn from history. What a great quote. (laughs) Yeah, very powerful. And that's what interests me is the patterns of human behavior over time. Technology has changed, but humans have not. They have not come up to that. And gradually, slowly, this worldview that we used to have uh, is shifting to a worldview that we now have. But if you were living in England uh, or anywhere in Europe in 1500, you would have believed in what was called a great chain of being. The great chain of being was at the top, everything was hierarchical. Your position in life 
was determined by where you were born. You could not move it from it. At the top was God. Under God was the Pope. Under the Pope was the king. Then the aristocrats, the clergy. Then the merchants, the yeoman farmers, and the peasant farmers. You could not move from that. There was no concept of individual freedom. You were, you did what you're told. And so much of history, so much of history, all the way to, oh, really, the Industrial Revolution was like that. 90% of the people worked for 10% of the wealthy. You were a serf in Russia. You were a slave in Rome. You were... Um, a peasant in France. These things were not overturned un until recently. Slavery itself, which is the most egregious sin of man, if you want to term it, it only, it only was abolished for the first time in history. Anybody know where it was? First place that abolished slavery? I don't. 18, 1804, Haiti. Really? Haiti. Haiti was the first one. Wow. But the British stopped the slave trade in 1807, but didn't stop slavery until 1833. And of course, for us, it was 1863. And for a lot of countries, it was until, I mean, the Russians didn't free the serfs until the late um, 19th century. So all of this is pretty recent, okay? The way that we view our lives. So to blame us for the way our our uh, ancestors behaved to one another is futile because they had a different worldview. They believed that slavery was right. In ancient Rome, you were a slave if you lost. If you didn't die in battle, you deserved to be a slave. And that's how Rome thrived. That's how the ancients viewed it. We viewed it all the way up until the 19th century, not too long ago. Then women became free. Then people could vote without having owning land. This all happened only in the last 100 or 150 years. So all this is recent. What we're talking about is the vanguard of, of a shift in worldview, the worldview of older times. Now, that interests me to see how that shift happened, what happened, who made it happen. All along the way, there were great philosophers, great thinkers who supported these changes and they made it and in contradistinction to their opinion there were great philosophers who disagreed with them the <clears throat> notion that men could have possessions and enrich themselves and work and gather uh property and uh possessions was only recent the church in europe the church in england disapproved of that it was only great people like uh, of all people, um, uh, Adam Smith, they viewed this as opulence. That's what he called it, opulence, the right to gather your own possessions, the right to be rich. And it was a good thing, not a bad thing. Whereas the hierarchy in the church said it was a bad thing to gather possessions. You lived until you died. That's when you got your, your reward. So all these things are shifts in worldview views. The world has been gradually going, mostly, I think, as Mark would say, for the better, for the better. There are opposing worldviews that are very destructive today. The, the worldviews that came out of the fascist regimes, the communist regimes, who demanded people to live for other, for the, the hierarchy. But this notion that we own our own lives, that we can do with our lives, it's pretty recent. It's pretty recent, and we're going to push it further. Yeah, and in this regard, the wind is at our back here. I mean, the, yeah. the, the winds of history in what you might call the Enlightenment movement and this sort of open-mindedness and, and just these ideas are really pushing us very smartly in the right direction. I, I do feel that the tug of sort of technology which allows these smaller groups of people to do huge amounts of harm is sort of the counterbalancing interest and this is why this is an urgent movement because we need to convince the reasonable people of the world to get together and get behind a simple idea 
So uh, we can calibrate the rules of the world properly so that people can live and let live because ultimately what we're trying to do here is optimize human happiness for everyone on the planet and minimize human suffering. That's that's the goal of what, what good movement would have a different goal than that? It is to reconcile differences and allow these so many different opinions, so many different views, so many different religions just to live with each other. Right. I mean, what are the choices here? The choices here are either I'm going to force my view on you or you're going to try to force your view on me. And we're in this endless war to basically use the law as the instrument of force to coerce our other humans into doing what we want them to do. Or we say we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to step back from that and say, look, what are you going to be forced? What are we going to use that instrument of force to do just to stop you from being an aggressor? That's all. If you're not an aggressor, you're left alone. We can now try to persuade each other, right? We're relegated to the domain of persuasion where I I could say, hey, Rick, don't do that. I think it's a bad idea. And you can say, sorry, Mark, I'm not convinced by your argument. I'm going to keep doing it. And I got to accept that unless you're violating the rule. This should make sense to all reasonable people. Rick, um, as you were kind of uh, talking about how this um, movement began and you were talking about how, uh, you know, you you asked Mark, well, you've been a libertarian all this time. Why haven't we made any progress? Um, Well, one of the reasons is kind of, I guess, marketing in in a way because we haven't been uh, packaging the message in a way that people can understand and make it overcomplicated and everything. But also, uh, we lose folks on the left and the right for pet issues, um, issues of freedom that basically when you're kind of aligning with the political parties in America, there's certain pet issues that you may have. And uh, one of the, if not the primary way that we lose our brothers and sisters on the right when we're talking with most freedom movements, at least historically, this is how, say, the libertarians have lost um, brothers and sisters on the left is this idea of uh, we can't force charity. We, we, charity has to be voluntary. Um, we, we can't uh, extract money through something like uh, involuntary taxation. And uh, so the end result is uh, we can't have these forced social programs anymore. And I think um, that's one of the driving principles of, uh, of folks on the left historically is that we want to be compassionate to those who are at the um, kind of the bottom tier of society, uh, the, the the serfs and the peasants and everybody who is through no fault of their own, maybe was dealt a bad, uh, a bad hand of cards at the beginning of their life, grew up in poverty, grew up in squalor, something that's not their fault. But um, the only way to help folks like that is to impose charity. Um, so impose is the word. Yes. Impose yeah. the magic force redistribution of wealth. That's where we disagree. We do not disagree with benevolence. We do not disagree with helping people who are less fortunate. That's our goal. We're hoping that people change their view of their fellow man and voluntarily give this thing. It's happened before. Charity was widespread and private before the government got involved in it and squashed it all. People took care of each other. Mormons took care of Mormons. Jews took care of Jews. Uh, all over the world, different groups voluntarily took care of their own. We do not need a structure from the top with central planning of charity. We just don't need it. But we do need charity. We do need benevolence. We do need those things. We do need to help those who are less fortunate. We don't disagree with the left on that. We just disagree that it should be forced. Somewhere in the world right now, Rick, listen to this podcast, there's somebody on the political left rolling their eyes and saying, are you kidding me, Dr. Fisher? People aren't going to voluntarily give if they're not forced to give. I mean, what what do you say to those folks? Not much. If they're unreasonable, what can you say? (laughs) I mean, I like to say they already do. I mean, billions of dollars every single year, every year, voluntarily, notwithstanding the fact that the government is still occupying this area and is forcing people to give to charity. But, you know, taking a step back from this for a moment, there are many different charities out there. You know, you say less fortunate. Less fortunate where? How less fortunate, right? I, I send my money and have for a long time 
to Africa because that's my choice. So maybe I don't want to spend uh, money helping somebody, you know, here locally. Um, although I, I might do that as well, but I might gauge the situation and say somebody here in the United States has lots of opportunities to get out of that situation. And somebody in Africa, depending on where they are, has less of an opportunity. And so I want to send my money there. But other people might say, you know, uh, medical research is more important or some or I'm, I'm concerned about nuclear warheads all over the world or. Uh, there, there are there are people getting malaria who we could just send mosquito nets out and save lives there. I mean, there's all kinds of different charities. And so anytime you do this through the government and import it into the law, what you're saying is one size fits all. And somebody gets to decide what everybody else has to do for charity in what amount, at what time. And, uh, and you're also extremely or should be extremely concerned that the government is actually going to use the money for the purposes they're saying they are. Another issue. Yeah. And, and you if know, I- there are there are organizations that analyze charities for their effectiveness. You've heard Sam Harris talk about that and have these guys on. And that's what freedom and competition allow. So that if you want your charity to uh, get private funding, you will be more efficient so that your rating can move up and people will be more attuned to giving to you. You do more effective work. And wouldn't that be wonderful? The government doesn't do that. The government is just, you give it, we dispense it. We have this basic rule, you apply for it and that's it. There is no efficiency. There is only waste. For people who take this position, I mean, what do you say when other people say, no, 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 I think we should send the money to a completely different charity. I mean, what's the argument other than, well, I've decided for me and for you, you have no right to decide for you or for anybody. I mean, this is really what they're saying. It just doesn't make sense. It's not conducive to peace and freedom and to humans getting along and that's what we've seen in the world we have endless strife if you're if you're tired of this endless strife where we're never going to make progress to get to freedom or peace and you, you got to say look we, we don't get to impose our views even ones we agree with like helping those less fortunate even the moral views we agree with we don't get to impose them on other people through the law because there'll be other people who have different moral views and they're going to say well what about my moral views how do we respond to this person either we say a sorry my views are better than your views and my views are going to be forced on you whether you like it or not which is a ticket to endless fighting or b Maybe your views are nice, too. We pull them all out of the law because we're trying to get to peace and freedom. That's the reason we pull them out of the law, even the stuff we agree with. And so, yeah, we're trying to inspire people to step up a little bit and look at the big picture here and say what we have been doing hasn't been working. And we have an urgent situation where we need to get people to step up and really work towards freedom and peace. It's not that difficult. It's live and let live. I'll continue to play devil's advocate on this issue a little bit here because I think it might be helpful for some folks, our brothers and sisters on the left, to help to think through these issues. There's an oft-repeated pragmatic argument here that societies where everybody's lifted up and the standard, the average standard of living is higher um, just tend to flourish more. And uh, this may be causation or correlation from how free the society is, as Dr. Fisher correctly pointed out. Whenever we see freedom, we tend to see flourishing. That's what history shows us. But the idea is that if the minimum standard of living for folks and people can focus on things other than am I going to starve this week, right. uh, uh, then they're allowed to they, they're able to pursue other things that lead to a productive society. What do you have to say to that? Well, I mean, I think this is the difference between throwing a hungry person a fish and teaching a hungry person how to fish, right? I mean, one thing we know, because as Dr. Fisher said, we've had lots of experience here. If we can get to a free society, this means people are free to trade. And the thing about trade that's important is trade gets us to win-win, right? A good trade because, you know, things don't have um, objective values to them. We value things differently. And so anytime that, like, for example, people at the law firm, we're trading, right? We're, I'm, they're valuing the 
uh, hourly rate that I'm paying them and I'm valuing the hour of work that they're giving. And so we trade and I'm better off because I prefer the hour of work and they're better off because they prefer the money we've agreed on for that hour. And so it's win-win. And so this improves standards of living. And so what we want to do is have as many trades as possible. And the way you have that is when you let people decide for themselves how they value things and to make trades and as much of them as possible. We call that a free market. And if you're curious about how that works out, then you got to look at places around the world. No one's had a perfectly free market. That's true. But there are places that have been more free than other places. And when we look at those places, and I I always like to look at, at Asia because you've got some stark differences there. You know, when you look at Singapore and Hong Kong, two countries that have historically been rated very free in terms of economic freedoms, not quite as free in terms of individual liberties, But their standards of livings are are spectacular. A mutual friend of Dr. Fisher and I, uh, Dave Dorn, recently got back from Singapore and he said, Mark, the standard of living there is incredible. Their technology is amazing. Uh, The place is incredible. People are rich. And uh, this isn't by accident, especially Hong Kong. They didn't even have any natural resources. So in Asia, there are many countries that are unfree. My wife was born in Burma, which we now call Myanmar, and I've been there. It's a third world country. I mean, why do you think that Burma is a third world country and Singapore is a first world country? This isn't by accident. So everywhere we look all over the world, whether it's the old East Germany versus West Germany, the North Korea versus South Korea, the Soviet Union versus the United States, again, not perfect, but the closer you get to freedom for individuals to make decisions over their own lives, the better people live. This is just something we can see over and over again. And our bad intentions, our good intentions can turn out bad. We saw a wonderful documentary in Medellin um, by a Polish uh, documentary worker showing that by, and you would think this was pretty obvious, people are hungry, give them food. So we give them food. And it turns out we destroy their own indigenous farms this is bill this is bill clinton giving rights right right? yes that's right that's right saying i i regret ever doing this you where did he send it to i can't remember which country it was i don't remember which country it was either but he destroyed he destroyed the rice trade in that country that's right because when the rice hit the market the farmers local farmers couldn't sell their rice they couldn't pull their farm they couldn't pull the the price down uh to to free as other people were getting free. So governments may have the right intention, seems reasonable, but almost always when they execute it, unintended consequences, adverse consequences result. And that's the way it is. We can't predict everything. I mean, and it's true that, I mean, I certainly don't think, and I don't share the view that everybody in government is bad or has bad intentions. I think the reverse is mostly true. I think mostly you have good people in government with good intentions who are trying to get things done. Now you got the libertarians rolling their eyes. Well, uh, they can roll their (laughs) eyes if they want, but the reality is most people go into this because they want to try to improve the world. I certainly don't want, you know, our theory does not depend on trying to paint uh, all politicians with bad intentions. Some certainly do. I don't know what the percentage is, and I don't even know exactly what we might call a bad intention and a good intention. That deserves more discussion as well. But I think most people want to improve the world. Why don't they? They don't because this just isn't the way to improve the world. What you're doing when you force charity is you're violating the basic rule. You're saying, look, it's okay to take people's money away from them by force, whether they like it or not, even if you're going to do something good with it. Well, this sets a bad precedent, right? Because Where does it end? We want to take more money from people. And of course, this is money that people wanted to spend on their own things that they valued higher. If they if they valued spending their money on the places the government wants them to spend it, they could certainly have spent it there. But they have other values. That's what the owners of the money want to do with the money. And this is the way you raise standards of living for everybody. I like the fact also that the movement doesn't need to take a position about whether people in politics or in government That's are right. good or bad right. or what type of government is good or bad or how big the government should be or how small the government should be. We don't have to take a position on any of this when we proceed from a principle, which is we don't care what you call government, whatever you decide, as long as it abides by the principle. Yeah, and while we got the libertarians all in a tizzy, uh, we don't even have to take a position on capitalism or socialism, right? I mean, that's perfectly fine. 
under a live and let live philosophy to be a socialist. You have every right to be a socialist and you can uh, pool your money with anybody you want and you can spend it however you like or however the group likes to spend it. There's absolutely no problem with that. In fact, uh, there are, you know, look at the typical family is a socialist type of a system, right? There's a breadwinner and then there are, there are people in the family who don't win any bread, uh, but they get money distributed to them according to their needs. And so, this is a socialist thing. I and mean, it's not that we're against socialism. It's that we're against, we're against force. Force. Involuntary socialism. Involuntary right. anything. Yep. We're against involuntary anything, I think is a great way to put it. Well said. What other uh, historical tidbits do you have for us today, Rick? I wanted him to get out the John Stuart Mill quote because we were talking this about is, it before. We, we've talked about John Stuart Mill so many times on this podcast because if you're going to start talking about— I don't about, want to talk about John Stuart Mill. I love the harm principle so much. I think it's just the most eloquent um, phrasing of the live and let live principle that's ever been said. Do you have it queued up and ready to go over there, Dr. Fisher? I have something that we did years ago. Oh, yeah. You could talk about that. If you want me, I'll, I'll just read what I wrote and I talked about. Mark was up there flailing his arms as usual, making fun of everybody. But he's much better now. He's living Doesn't in sound very compassionate. No, not at all. No. no. Okay, so... I come from Ayn Rand, okay, who believes in uh, rational self-interest. So I said it is the notion of sacrifice that is the heart of the problem with the dominant existing moral codes, not whether or not you believe in God. The demand that you sacrifice your life and happiness to something or someone or demand that others sacrifice to you is contrary to someone, someone's individual self-interest. Codes based on sacrifice inevitably lead to conflict. That brings us to an alternative moral code, one that is based on individual self-interest. It can be subsumed into one word, decency, one phrase. And I wrote this 15 years ago, live and let live. Oh, isn't that 15 great? years ago. Or two simple laws, as newsletter author Richard Mayberry so succinctly put, do all that you say you're going to do and keep your hands off another man's person and property. This self-interest with restraint, or what some call rational self-interest, its adoption is merely practical. It alone supports a happy, peaceful, productive life. Well Simply said. Both. Well said. That I think, excellent. Yeah, I think the point here is live and let live tolerates the very, very, very religious position, as well as the very, very, very atheist position, and everything in between. So you can believe whatever you want, anything. You can worship any way you want or not worship at all, as long as you don't violate the principle. I mean, what could be easier to say, just do whatever you want with no restrictions whatsoever, except for one. Don't be an aggressor. That's it. And that's another thing that's so beautiful about the movement is, we don't care how you get to live and let live. Yeah. As long as you arrive, there is all that we care about. I loved when we had our guest and good friend Richard Stevens on to talk as a, as a Christian yep. to talk about why all Christians should accept the live and let live principle. I know Dr. Zudi Jasser, who's also a huge uh, helping component of getting the movement off the ground, is a Muslim, and he's got reasons that all Muslims should uh, adopt the live and let live principles. Bottom line is, I love all that. That's all fantastic, but we don't really care how you got here. Yeah, no interest at all. I mean, if, we... you, if you prayed to a banana this morning and it came to life and you believe that it told you to live your life by live and let live, that's fantastic. That's we right. don't need to squabble about the, the way that you got here. Right. There are lots of philosophical disputes that have been going on for a long period of time about natural law and whether natural law, which is more of a John... Uh, John Locke approach, natural law gets us there, or social contract can get us there, this either explicit or implied uh, somehow contract between human beings, or Ayn Rand, as Dr. Fisher was talking about, or maybe your own particular religion, whatever it is, or or uh, maybe it just seems like the right rule to you. That's fine, too. We don't quarrel about that. There's no reason to get into that type of an argument. If you can understand that live and let live makes sense as a rule, as a way for humans to interact with each other, for us to get to peace and freedom, and you should, if you give it any thought at all, this should make sense to you. How you get there is irrelevant. We don't care. Why, why fight about this? We're coming to the end of our time, gentlemen, and uh, Rick, I wanted to give you the last word. Any final parting thoughts? Any uh, thoughts about the movement and uh, 
want to do a rallying cry or anything like that? I am so happy that this thing is starting to take off. I never thought it would because I'm naturally a pessimist. But watching Mark operate in Medellin, hearing him talk there, seeing people come up to him, people who want, people who are hungry for it. We saw Venezuelans that had to bribe, walk across the border and bribe the guerrillas in order to come to this meeting. They were so in tune with this. We have something to offer. And we're going to we're going to see it through. Yeah, I'm very excited about it. And uh, Rick, your help has been totally invaluable. I I want to just mention that uh, Rick and I were so impressed with the woman who was actually running the conference over there. Her name is Maria Alejandra, and uh, she was just so impressive and so full of energy and understood the philosophy so well and really took to live and let live. Rick said, "You know what? We got to get her on our team." And I'm, I'm willing to donate to the movement to make that happen. And so, but for Dr. Rick Fisher, we had just struck a deal with uh, Maria Alejandra to get on full time and start working for the Live and Let Live Foundation, where, by the way, people can make a tax deductible donation. So really, people should go to liveandletlive.org. Um, I just want to put a little bit of a call out there. If you listen to the show, if you like these ideas, don't just sit around and do nothing. Be part of the solution. You have an opportunity to actually help us get this movement off the ground. We're not officially launching it until March of 23, so we got some time. We wanted to launch professionally. This thing has to be world-class. We don't have room for error here. It has to work. This is maybe the last great hope, and I, I don't think it's stated too strongly to say it's the last great hope of our species. We have real existential threats that we got to get under control. And so if you're sitting there and you're thinking about it, I would say, first off, Step one, go to liveandletlive.org. And if you agree with this principle, if you like what we're talking about, you agree with these aspirational values, check the damn box and join the movement. Put your name and email address in there. And now we can say you're part of the Live and Let Live global community. And then get more involved. If you don't, if you don't have time or any of that and you're in a position to donate some money, every little bit helps. We're, we're pushing everything to bring in this movement to fruition. If you want to get involved, there are chapter committees, there are activity committees, there's a fundraising committee. If you want to write something like Dr. Fisher is, an article, um, putting it in the language of live and let live, putting your spin on it, your perspective on it, we invite you to do that. Start a chapter. If there's no chapter where you are, this isn't a big deal. Just uh, agree to host a meeting once a month. We got plenty of people in the movement who are happy to show up and help you run the chapter. Let's get this thing moving. We can't do it ourselves. Here's something easy that you can do. Just share this podcast. Yeah. Just share liveandletlive.org with your friends. Tell people about it. Get involved just any way that you can because we're going to need everybody's help. Yeah, blast it out on your social media and share Peace Radicals. Let people listen to what we're talking about here. Let's get them involved. This is something that the decent people of the world have got to get together and get done. Good way to strike up a conversation with somebody. Absolutely. This is one of the... What do you believe in? Well, I believe in live and let live. And nobody usually disagrees. Right. We have yet to find somebody who takes a staunch anti-live and let live (laughs) position. Yeah. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been a great conversation. Once again, liveandletlive.org for this podcast and many more. You can start a chapter, see information about the movement, or make a donation if you feel so inclined. Join the movement. Join us, guys. Help us out with this. Uh, We need more people like Dr. Rick Fisher in on this movement, Um, and uh, let's make the world a better place. This has been Attorney Andy Markintel, our guest, uh, Dr. Rick Fisher, and Attorney Mark J. Victor. Until next time, we're the Peace Radicals. Peace.